John was giving us an overview of what is to come, of the judgments that are to come. He was giving like a broad picture, painting a broad picture. And in verse 1 of chapter 14, we see Jesus standing on Mount Zion along with 144,000 Jewish people who were sealed, and they were considered the first fruits of the believers, if you will, that, uh, Jewish believers that were going to finally come to faith in their long-awaited Messiah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us pray for the ministries like uh, Jews for Jesus, Jacob's Hope, chosen people who are going in Israel and delivering the word of God to God, uh, God's covenant people. Amen? And as we proceed in verse 3 of chapter 14, we see that the, these um, 144,000 are singing a song of praise unto the Lord. Reason being is because they're finally seeing the coming of the Christ and his long-awaited kingdom and his judgment on Israel's enemies. And what we also read in this chapter is the proclamation of three angels. The first goes out through all the earth proclaiming the eternal gospel. And what I said a couple of weeks ago, and it's so true, this is a picture of God still leaving room for people to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. And unfortunately, sinful man takes a stand and rebels against the faithful God. Sad but true. All right, so, and as we go on, there were two other angels. And what they're speaking to, it's now time for judgment. The judgment is coming. The judgment of God on a Christ-rejecting world and a rebellious world. And so with that said, what we want to do is now go on to chapter 14, verses 14 and on. And this is, uh, which will simply continue to look forward at the judgments that are about to come on the earth. So it's still looking forward of what is to come. And actually what we'll see is that this will be fulfilled when we get into chapter 19 of Revelation, verses 11 to 21. And that time is actually referenced as the apocalypse of Christ or the revelation return of Christ. When the Lord returns physically to earth and defeats the enemies of the world, the enemies against him and enemies against God's people. So with that said, let's begin at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 14. It says this, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the white cloud was like one who looked like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, the words of this verse should sound very familiar for people who have read through the Scriptures, because what we see here is terminology that is used in the book of Daniel and by the Lord himself. Listen to Daniel's prophetic words in chapter 7 of his book, verses 13 and 14. It says this, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What Daniel's doing here, he's looking forward to what we're reading in Revelation. He's pointing to the one who would come on the clouds, the Son of Man who would come on the clouds, sent by the one who sits on the throne, the Heavenly Father. And listen to the words of our Lord in Matthew 26, 60, 63 to 64. It says, but Jesus remained silent. This is when he was on trial. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath 
and by the living God, tell us, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So we see in the Old Testament, and we see Jesus' words himself pointing to this time now that we're reading in Revelation when the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds of glory to take his rightful rule over the earth. Praise God. So in both these passages, we see that he is coming, and he's going to judge a Christ-rejecting world, and he will establish his kingdom just as written. It's going to happen. Praise God. So I wrote something here that the Holy Spirit put on my heart. Listen, for those here, and I was hoping that we'd be online, I say this. Let the hearer be aware and beware of the words of Scripture that we see in this book and to take heed, to take heed. These things are going to come. They are going to happen just as written. Amen? All right. And to go on, John writes, Then I looked which again introduces, when he says he looked, another important point, another point of re reference that we need to look at closely. And what he does, he sees a white cloud, which symbolized the majesty and glory of God. So as he sees Christ on this white cloud, a symbol of his majesty, a symbol of his glory. And if we went back to Revelation chapter 1, we get a vision of the resurrected Christ. Hair as white as wool. This is the vision that he sees, the glory of God. All right, and the one sitting on the throne is referred to as the Son of Man. And church, if we go through the scriptures, we realize that this is a reference to Christ himself. What we must understand, man, and Jesus uh, often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And what we see in the four Gospels, it references Christ as the Son of Man 80 times. 80 times. Thank God for commentators who did the work, because I wasn't about to start counting through the four Gospels, all righty? And as we read, it's also what Daniel uses to profess the one who is coming. He calls him the Son of Man. He's pointing forward to the Christ, Jesus Christ, coming at the end of the age to defeat his enemies. And this is very important. Two objects that the Son of Man has possession of. And the first one is a golden crown. Now listen carefully. It's not the diadema that would be worn by a king who's sitting on the crown in his throne room. All right? It's the Stephanos. It's the victor's crown that would be given to someone in an athletic event and or a returning general in Rome who is entering the city after conquering. So he's winning, he's wearing the victor's crown because it's pointing to him being victorious over all his enemies. And this is cool. He's wearing the crown, right? So as I studied, in Rome, when the general would come in on his chariot, white horses in the front, behind him, a slave would hold the crown over his head to show that he was just a mere mortal, that he was just a man. Here, Jesus is wearing the crown because he is the eternal God. He is the only one worthy to wear the crown for all creation because he is Lord over all heaven and earth. Amen. Praise God. Now, the second object in the Lord's hand is a sickle. And for, uh, we may not be familiar with it, but in the days of farming, the sickle was used and still is used to harvest the grain before we got into, you know, the big machinery and everything. And what would happen is the harvester would go out and he would literally go back and forth right to the base 
of the crop so we could get all that's on the crop to harvest it. And, it's, and as we go forward, it's a picture of what the Lord is going to do to the wicked on the earth. A complete harvest, right to the base, if you will. It's his complete victory over his enemies who have rebelled against him and denied him as Lord and Savior. So when he comes with this sickle, he's coming to harvest the wicked of the earth, and it's because the time for judgment is one. We'll also see the appearance of a fourth angel here. And as we read, the first angel comes proclaiming the eternal gospel. Two more angels declare the judgment of God. All right, but now this fourth angel, he's coming, and what he's saying is these judgments are coming. It's time. We're no longer speaking to them coming. It's time for them to happen, all righty? Look at verse 15. It says, Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time is to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The wickedness on the earth is time, because wickedness, it's like the days of Noah, have taken over the whole earth. Please notice that the angel who comes, comes from the throne room of God, of God the Father himself, to deliver the message to the Son of Man, saying, it's time, go and reap the harvest. And in the original language, when they use the word ripe here, we think of ripe as a nice piece of fruit. This ripe means a withered, dried out, rotten piece of fruit. One that, what do they call it, uh, Sam, Mahom, Mahu? Mahu, that it's just rotten, okay? So what he's speaking to, this is the rotten, unredeemed fruit of humankind that's only good to be tossed away. You can't, this fruit is unlike the fruit of the redeemed. We have the fruit of salvation, and we're to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But here, this is the fruit of evil, the fruit of corruption, the fruit of wickedness that's taken over the whole earth, that at this point, the Father says to the Son, Go! Reap, it's time. The, the judgment has come. And listen carefully. Just like we're going to see, the father is going to instruct his, his son to go and bring his bride back to him. If you want to watch uh, a great documentary, it's called Before the Wrath, and it parallels. Jesus' ministry parallels the Galilean wedding. And there comes a time, the uh, bride and her husband, they make a covenant agreement, the husband, the bridegroom, goes back, builds a place on his father's house, and doesn't come to get his bride till his father says, go, get your bride. So we'll see that, but now we also see that the father says in the same way, instructs the son, go and reap the harvest of the earth for the judgment it's time. So this is what we see going on, okay? Listen to John, and um, the reason the father sends Jesus is he's been delegated as the judge over the earth. So now the Father says, what I've delegated you to do, to be judge over the earth, go and do it. Listen to John 5, 22 to 23 and then 27. This is Jesus speaking. He says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And now in verse 27, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. So Jesus is the one who's coming to judge the earth. And listen to Acts 10.42. 
He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, speaking of Jesus, whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Church, he came the first time to be men's savior. And we are in the age of grace where his salvation faith is still available. But next time he comes, he is coming to judge. And he will judge righteously for he is holy. Amen? And I want to get ahead of myself. And now the Lord swings the sickle over the inhabitants of the earth, and, he, and they reap the judgment of God. Look at verse 16. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So he's reaping the judgments. And there are two trains of thought here, but both lead to the same conclusion. All right, listen carefully. The first being that the, this harvest points solely uh, to the time of Armageddon, the final battle. The second train of thought is this. It's a description of the bold judgments that are going to be poured out in rapid succession, culminating with the battle of Armageddon. But either way we follow, either road or path we follow here, what they both lead to is a judgment on the inhabitants of the earth and the battle of Armageddon where Christ will come, defeat the armies of the world, and establish his kingdom. But I personally believe the second train of thought uh, and here's why, that the bold judgments during this time are the ones that are going to fall upon the earth, okay? And then what will happen at the end of that is Armageddon. So with that said, let's go on to verses 17 and 18. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes, from the earth's fine, because the grapes are ripe. And so now these uh, angels, who are ministers for the Lord and do his bidding, go out and they are going to reap the grape harvest on the earth. And we've seen this before in, in Revelation and throughout Scripture, where angels are used to do the Lord's bidding. They called out the four horsemen. They're giving instructions here, and they will be the ones who pour out the bold judgments in chapter 16. So the, as we go through 17, we see that this last angel, the fifth angel, comes from the temple, proceeding from the throne of God. And it's very interesting. He too has a sickle in his hand, and he's going to assist in the harvest at the earth. But what's happening, he's going to assist in what they call the harvest of the grapes. And this is going to occur right before the battle of Armageddon, if you will. Along with him, we see a sixth angel, very important. Listen carefully. He had charge of the fire. And listen, it came from the altar. Very significant language, especially we're going to look back at Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Listen to what it reads. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brother and sisters, were killed just as they were. The time has now come as this angel comes from the altar for those prayers to be answered because God's judgment is coming upon those who rejoiced in the martyr of his be held back. And there's much significance in these statements. Look, when, uh, in the, when we talk about the vine, the earth's vine and the grapes, Israel 
If we go through the scriptures in Psalms, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, it's also uh, at times called the Lord's vine. And we know in John, in chapter 5, the earth is referred to as the vine, uh, as Jesus being the vine and the church is associated with him. And here's the point. Both Israel and the church were supposed to do righteous acts to represent the Lord. Here what we're going to see, this vine is the vine of the evil one and all the people associated with him who have nothing, done nothing but evil acts, corrupt acts, wicked acts across the earth. So now this vine, and also the word ripe here, is unlike the other one. It means they're full, they're ready, that they have uh, corrupted the earth with, and full of wickedness, and it's time for them to be judged because any further, and the grape would burst. So it's time for these wicked to be judged. Really uplifting sermon this morning, Pastor. All right. And to understand this more completely, go to verses 19 and 20. Look what it says. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grape, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the grapes, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So the angel goes out, and if you look, I looked it up, the old wine presses, you had a basin here, a trough, and a basin here. And what they would do is put the grapes in here, and they would get in, and they would stomp them. Let's hope they wash their feet, all right? But they stomped the grapes, and the, uh, the juice would splatter on them, but then it would flow through the trough, and they would collect it in the other basin, all righty? And what this is a picture of is exactly what's going to happen to these who are harvested. They're going to be trampled upon by the bold judgments that are going to be poured out in that Armageddon and that the blood will actually splatter and flow and the carnage and bloodshed is going to be immeasurable because millions upon millions upon millions are be gathering in this area, the Valley of Megiddo, to take place in this battle and they will be slaughtered by the Lord and his armies, us. All right? So the bloodshed is going to be unbelievable. And it says it's going to take place outside the city. Reason being, the city of Jerusalem will not be affected. It will happen outside the city. God will protect his city and his people. Amen? And so I looked it up, and it says 1,600 stadia is equivalent to about 200 miles. Listen to me. Israel itself in length is only 290 miles. This battle is going to take place covering most of the nation. Blood will be let. That it says the blood that spills will be up to a horse's bridle, which is about four feet. And whether that's literal or hyperbole, what it means is the carnage is going to be enormous. Because God is going to judge those who have rebelled against him. And church, again, this should be a wake-up call for all those who believe they can avoid the judgment of God can't avoid the judgment of God. You can put your head in the sand. You can say, ah, he's a loving God. Yes, he is, but he's also a just and holy God. Anybody who rebels against his grace, mercy, and redemptive work will face the judgment of God. And Hebrews 10.31 says it clearly. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank God. God, we are under his grace. Thank God we have salvation in his name. Amen? Because this is happening on the earth. 
I don't think we can fathom in any way, shape, or form what hell is going to be like, what the lake of fire is going to be like. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Hallelujah. And I'm going to reiterate this. If you're here today and you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're either going to die and go to hell, that's a reality, or the rapture will happen and you'll be left behind to face these judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth. Why anybody, for the sake of a few years of fun on the earth, would give up an eternity or want to face what we're talking about is beyond me. And all I can come to is the depraved heart of man that makes him look at the temporal and not the eternal. Amen. With that said, uh, we've actually come now to the end of chapter 14, and I have down here, I could let you go, but nah, you came for a meal, not a snack, right? So I'm going to give you the meal. You can get the snack after church. All right, let's get into 15. And again, this is an interlude. It's an interlude between what these angels are professing and what we're going to see in chapter 16 when the bowls of wrath are actually filled, are going to be poured out. Stay tuned for next week if my wife doesn't pull me to Pennsylvania. All right. Okay. So it's an interlude. But all the things that we see that the angels are speaking to and what's happening here, the harvest, are going to happen. And moving forward, we will see the pouring out of the bold judgments and Armageddon. So let's look at uh, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is complete. Can you imagine? Church, when John says he saw another great sign, what he's referring to is what we have to kind of look back to chapter 12, where we see a couple of signs. The red dragon being who? Satan himself. The woman being Israel himself. We have to couple the red dragon and Israel with this sign that we see here. Alrighty? And what he's pointing to is this third sign is representing what is going to happen to the Antichrist and his evil empire. This third sign is that God is going to finally pour out his wrath, destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all who have taken the mark of the beast. It's going to come, all righty? And it's going to happen when those angels come and they pour out the bold judgments and finally at the Battle of Armageddon when the Lord physically returns to the earth, all righty? So let's look at verses 2 and 4 now with that said. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And it's tranquil. The cherubim are there, the seraphim, the elders, and they're worshiping the Lord. But what we see here is the sea of glass mixed with fire talking to the wrath that God is going to pour out on the earth. It's a, a fire of, of wrath and anger, God's righteous anger, for the time has come. I know he keeps saying the same thing, but his fury is about to be poured out on the Antichrist, his henchmen, and all who have taken the mark. And what we also see here is a picture of those who refused to worship the Antichrist and take his mark, but they paid the ultimate price for their allegiance. They were martyred for their faith in Christ. 
Amen? Very simply, family, they were steadfast to the end, literally. They wouldn't deny the Lord Jesus. They wouldn't take the mark of the beast and bow down to the Antichrist in his image, and they were martyred for it. And listen carefully, this is so important. Although in the eyes of man, it seems that the Antichrist, with his mandates, were chosen for a reason, were victorious over the saints of God. The truth is in reality, they defeated him by remaining true to Christ. Amen? The Antichrist presupposition that he was victorious by taking their lives meant that the saints of God moved from earth to heaven's glories and the reward was seeing the risen Christ and being in his presence. They weren't defeated. They were victorious because now they are in the presence of the one they serve and the one they, they spoke of and the one they long to see. But the Antichrist, he'll experience a victory with a small V and for a short time. But we know that his term is in the lake of fire for eternity. So man may look at this as like, yes, he got rid of those Christians, those people who profess Christ. Meanwhile, they're rejoicing in heaven and their time is to come because they took the mark. What a perfect application that we can make for us today. I got two things here the Spirit of God gave me. The way to defeat Satan and those under his influence is to be obedient to the Lord, his word, and his principles and commands. Please, Christian, I get a little leery after a while. Everybody talking about the devil being around every tree. He can't touch you. He can't touch us. He can do nothing outside the will of the, of, of the Father. There's not a spirit of everything doing things. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Can we be tempted? Yes. Can he cause us, or cause us to sin, giving it to the temptations? Yes. But he can do nothing to us outside of God's will. So please. And the way to defeat him, just be obedient to the Lord and walk in his ways. Because we have victory in Christ. We don't know what faces us tomorrow. Every day things change in a bizarre and strange way in the world we live. We don't know how deep the persecution is going to go in our country. But if it comes, God will give us the grace and we have the power through the Holy Spirit not to deny him. Yeah. Keep your eyes on him no matter what. And it can get ugly and it can get tough. But we've got to just trust the Lord through it. And like these martyrs and the martyrs of old, say, I will not deny my Lord. Amen? And to go on, I have something else here if I can find it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> All right, look. Give me one sec. All right, to go on, we now see in heaven is that those who overcame by the blood of the Lamb are now holding up golden harps. And as we've studied before, harps mean they're singing song of praise. They're singing songs of worship. So they're rejoicing before the Lord. They're not thinking about the time on earth. They're not thinking about their martyrdom. They're just rejoicing in the presence of God, singing the song of his servant Moses and of the Lamb. And if we look at this, the song of Moses is given in Exodus 15 as well as Deuteronomy 32. It's a song of praise and thanksgiving. As they came out on the other side of the wilderness, they sing this song because God delivered them. And these saints are in heaven. In 32, it speaks of God's faithfulness through the journey on this side of eternity. God is faithful to us, church. He will see us through this side of eternity, and he will bring us gloriously home. Amen? So we can sing the same song. And the song of the Lamb is just a song of redemption. 
They're singing, thank you, Jesus, that by your, purchase, by your blood you purchased men. You purchased their souls from hell. They're singing, the rejoicing in the redemption and salvation they have in Jesus Christ. And you know what? We have the same thing. We've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. And we can rejoice. Amen? And for a moment, I just want to dwell into the attributes that were in the song and the works of God that are displayed. First of all, they say, all his works are great and marvelous. Whether past, present, or future, all his works are great and marvelous. It's only two times in all of Scripture that these words are put together. That's how awesome God is, great and marvelous. And if we go on, we see that we have the absolute surety that all that God has done, is doing, and will do will come as he has written and is absolutely perfect. And you know what? I got two examples down here. Look at creation. Just look at creation. How marvelous are your deeds, O Lord. Spoke into existence the entire universe. I mean, look. Take a walk. When uh, Teresa and I and Jimmy and Sharon drove out to Missouri last summer, it's beautiful. God's creation is magnificently beautiful. And Teresa and I were watching something last night. I forget what it was. And I said, from the, oh, we were, sitting, I'm, we were sitting out here. This is our coffee spot on Saturdays. We have coffee after lunch, so we sit by the canal. And I'm saying, look at this. From the smallest bug to the birds to the beauty to the water, God spoke. Everything he does is perfect. And in the greater example, if you will, salvation. That God himself would come to earth and die for us. What an incredible, marvelous, and great work of God. So everything that God does is great and marvelous. Go take a look in the mirror, even as we get older and these things get bigger. The human body is a great, marvelous work. All by chance, I think not. We were looking at uh, one of our friends had their little caterpillar jaw, you know, that they're going to turn into butterflies. Really? By chance that this little bug turns into this beautiful butterfly? God's creation is incredible. God is creative, incredible. His artistic, creative ability, along with our others' abilities, they marvel when we look at them. I'm sorry, I'm excited. All right, look at what uh, these guys are just quoting Psalm 92, verses 4 and 5. Look, look what they sing. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your deeds. How great are your works, O Lord. How deep. 40, verse 5. O Lord, my God. Are the wonders you have done and the plans you have for us, none can compare to you. If I proclaim it and declare them, they're more than I can count. He's an infinite God. We can't even count the works of his hands, but they're awesome. Fair and very simple. All God's ways are perfect and they occur for a purpose. Even what we see today, everything's being worked out perfectly by God's plan. Look through history. God uses the diabolical plans of men to fulfill his plan. Oh, just so happens that Augustus calls a census, and all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem where the Christ is prophesied to be born. And if you look at the crucifixion, God worked it out perfectly. Listen to Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So God used the diabolical plans of men to fulfill the work of the crucifixion and salvation. 
And he's working everything today to a final plan. Though it looks crazy, upside down, horrible, and what's going on, do you not think that Bill Gates and George Soros and Zelensky and Trudeau and all these guys are going to outdo the Almighty God? I think not. Because they're on Satan's strings. And you know who's on Satan's strings are on? Almighty God. God's plan is being worked out. And you know what? We should rejoice because the imminent return of Christ could happen any moment. The signs are here. Everything's here. Don't be afraid of what men can do. Keep your eyes on God. That was an aside. All right. And then they go on. They say, is the Lord God, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. He's the almighty. He's the omnipotent one. No one, nothing on earth or in heaven can outdo our God. So what do we have to worry about? When it says that he holds us in the palm of his hands, that he wraps his arms around us like an eagle's wings, what do we have to fear? So for those who do wrestle with fear and anxiety, get in the word of God. Get in your prayer closet and the fear will lift and the peace of God will fill your hearts and minds. Amen? Because we serve an omnipotent God and an immutable God. And everything will be done according to his word. He changeth not. Amen? Church, can we not take comfort in this, being the saved ones? Listen, I wrote this. Our salvation is secure in Christ. We have the absolute, uh, we have been forgiven, justified, adopted, redeemed, and reconciled in Christ. Because he paid the price for sin, and by faith in him, we're in him, and we'll receive all of this going forward. Eyes closed. Let's, let's pray. No. <laughs> Got more. A few more pages. We're almost there. All right. And look at this question. And I think it's so cool. The Holy Spirit just did a work. Look at the question they said. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? Oh, if we look, you go to Romans 1, right? It says he's revealed himself in the creation. Romans 2 reveals himself to us in conscience. He walked amongst us the God-man, and we have his word. And when we come to know who the living God is, we too will say, who will not fear you? Who will not reverence you? When you get a glimpse of the God of glory, we fall at his knees and rejoice. Amen? We have been blessed, church, that we have come to know the living God. That we can have intimate fellowship with the living God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Who will not fear your name? Because once we come to know who he is, we drop to our knees and say, oh, this finite, wretched, filthy sinner to be allowed to come into the presence of an infinite, wonderful, holy God, and he embraces me as a child. We sang it this morning. We are children of God. Amen? And church, as those who have received Christ and have come to a greater understanding of who he is, as we walk with him, shouldn't we more than all reverence him above all things? Should we not rightly represent him and not take away from who he is as his ambassadors? So let us be the ones who are salt and light to this dying world. Let them see Christ in us. Let them hear Christ from our lips. Let them, when they observe us, see that this person speaks and does what he speaks. Amen? That we walk the walk and talk the talk. 
We have come to know him in a personal relationship. So like the Israelites, like the saints of old, like these martyred saints around the throne, let us sing the song of the servant Moses and of the Lamb of God, rejoicing in the God that we serve. We should be the most joyful people walking around. Oh, man. Joe, gas prices rose 20 cents the other day. Yeah. Guess what, though? You know what else is going up? Me. When that trumpet blows, I'm going up. You want to know about that? What? Of course, it says, normal's not coming back. Jesus is. It's a great door opener. People, I was in Lytle with my wife yesterday, and people were like, doing one of those, like, stay away from that guy. Yeah, but yeah, we need to be his witnesses. All right, go on. Listen carefully. There's going to come a day when all the nations will be humbled before our Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But church, the beautiful thing is we bow now in homage and out of love and rejoicing. They will bow out of fear and trembling. Do you hear me? They will bow out of fear and trembling because what's going to happen, the book of the law is going to be opened and the Lord's going to say, you see, this is my perfect moral law. You fell short. I sent someone, my son, to handle this for you, but you didn't want it. So now this is what you're going to be judged by, the book of the law. And that, I'm actually going to get into that right now. And look at verse 5. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was open. What's really interesting here, it's not the word heron that is used, which means the whole temple complex. It's the word naos, which is, refers to the holy of holies. So what we're seeing here is John looking into the holy of holies. And there's one very important object that was found in the Holy of Holies, and it's the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the tablets of the law were, and where God would manifest his presence in the Shekinah glory over the temple, and where God communicated his covenant to his people, and that his covenant cannot be changed. John sees, and the Holy of Holies is contained in there, and also what was in the Holy of Holies was Aaron's budding staff, and a jar of preserved manna, showing how God will preserve and lead and protect his people. Amen? So we see the covenant law of God's covenant word to his people, that he's going to protect them, preserve them, and see them through. And we know there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved, and we're hanging on to their coattails, if you will, because through the Israelites came the Christ, the word, and we've been privy and adopted into that. Amen? But he's coming back for his covenant people. And now as the covenant law is open, it only reinforces, as I said, that God's judgments are true and just. They open the law. Those who have denied Christ are going to be judged according to the law, even if we look at what Paul tells us. I would not known have known what sin was unless the law was given. The law is given the point is to show us that we're sinners and that we're in need of God's salvation. So when he opens this book and they haven't chosen Christ, then they will receive the judgment of God. And with that said, I want to segue into verses 6 to 8, which we'll finish up with this morning. And it says this, Out of the temple came the seven angels with seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. Listen to this line. No one 
could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was completed. The door was shut. Scary. What we see are the final seven plagues that are going to be poured out by these angels, these bold judgments, vile judgments in some translations, on those who have rejected God and taken the mark of the beast. And they're going to be the most severe and harsh of all the judgments we've read about in the book so far. I started reading for next week. You don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. You don't want others to be here. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. But the angels are in clean, shining lemon, gold sashes, just showing that uh, the holiness of God. And they go to a four living creature, one of the four living creatures who hands them these bowls. And the four judgments have been sanctioned by God for the time has come for him to pour out his wrath. And in verse 8, the temple's filled with smoke. And we see it twice before in the dedication of uh, Solomon's temple and in the wilderness. And you couldn't enter the temple at this point. And what it's saying to us is that the door is closed. The age of grace has come to an end, and God is going to judge once and for all. And family, I'm going to end the message with this. First of all, God is not willing, Scripture tells us, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? But there comes a point. He is long-suffering, but there comes a point as we continue to harden our heart against the gospel message that he says, go ahead. Have it your way. And we go further and further into depravity and a more hard and hardened heart. And we will face the judgment of God. Do you hear me? God will render his perfect justice because it is part of his perfect holiness. You see this symbol? This is where perfect justice meets perfect holiness. Because the perfect justice of God, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son. And by Jesus taking that, we have salvation in his name. Amen? Praise God. And let me end with this. In the days of Noah, the Lord used this man for 120 years, a preacher of righteousness, about impending judgment and the need for people to repent. But a point came when the time of warning was up and God sent the rains on the earth and only eight people survived. Do you hear me? Today, church, God is using us as preachers of righteousness. It's called the gospel message because the hour of judgment is closing in. It is. It seems that I stress this every week, but the need to be a witness for and of Christ is imminent. These are crucial times. If the signs are pointing to the imminent return of Christ, then the folks out there need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel message. Because sooner or later, all these judgments we talked about will fall on the inhabitants of the earth. Or they will pass from this world and their fate is sealed. And I believe we have truly entered the days of Noah. I really do. That the Lord's return is imminent. So I have two requests this morning. The first is to the church. No matter what the cost, go out and share the gospel. Because I don't think there's any greater cost than the suffering of a lost soul. That's the greatest cost in humanity if someone goes into a lost eternity. What else? You can lose things on earth, a house, clothes, even your life, food, but your soul, that's eternal. And my second is for any who are here this morning who may not have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. 
He's the only way of salvation. He's the only way of coming into a right relationship with the Lord. Again, let today be the day of salvation. I plead with anybody here who has not asked Christ to be their Lord and Savior, anybody here who's trying to mask a walk with Christ, let today be the day where you say once for all, I am going to put my faith in Jesus and serve him so that I have eternal life and the blessings of God to come. Amen? So I rarely do this, but please, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Almighty God, Father, Lord, I come in Jesus' name, Father, and I ask for those here who are born of your Spirit that you would embolden us, that you would enlighten us to the critical hour we live in and the necessity, my God, to share the gospel no matter the cost. Lord, that you would take away all fear, take away all anxiety, and give us a boldness, Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would illuminate to us the words of Scripture that need to be heard, that would touch a person's heart, that they would put their faith in you. Let them professing to be Christians. When they know behind the scenes they're not walking the walk, but they can put on a great face in the church environment, that they would come today and say, no, today, my whole life is yours, Lord. I surrender to you, Lord. I'm not going to run out in the secular world and play the game and then come and just kneel before you on a Sunday. I want to be yours totally. And Lord God, if there are any here that have never asked you into their hearts, I pray today will be the day of salvation, that they would humble themselves. And I will make myself available, and there will be some elders in the back, even during Bagel Sunday, hope you have in Christ. But today, let today be the day of salvation. So Father, as we end this message, we thank you that we're saved. We thank you that we will never experience your judgment wrath, whether through the tribulation or into eternity. Lord God, and with that view in mind, let us be bold about your commission. And Lord, as your children who understand what we have been saved from and what we are saved to, let us also sing the song of your servant Moses and the song of the Lamb and rejoice and be glad that we're saved and have eternal life. For what can men do to us? They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Lord God, help us to walk circumspectly before you in obedience as a way of defeating Satan's influence over our lives. And Almighty God, I do pray that as the body of Christ, we continue in fellowship, girding each other up. Lord God, that we would meet together as groups, even outside the church, and gird each other up in prayer and in the word and that we would grow in you and be a force used by you in prayer against what's going on in our world today. Holy Spirit, lead your church, we pray. Jesus, be the head of our church and your church. And we just thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.